This episode is brought to you by Christina Whiteley, realtor with Fabulous Homes Colorado, powered by Keller Williams Freedom. So Rachel, we actually moved into a bigger home right before we started foster care to get more space, and we are sure glad we did. It's made a huge difference. Natasha, tell me about Fabulous Homes Colorado. Well, Fabulous Homes Colorado specializes in helping first-time homebuyers and veterans find the right fit for their families, from cute condos to luxury homes. What parts of Colorado do they serve? So they serve El Paso County, Woodland Park, and Pueblo. And what I've noticed most about Christina is that she truly cares about the community and not just with lip service. So if you want a realtor that truly values relationships over transactions, give Christina a call at 719-310-4347 and tell her just a special sent you. You can also learn more about Christina and Fabulous Homes Colorado on our website, justaspecial.com. Each office is independently owned and operated. I just kept falling through the cracks each and every time. That's how you start rolling into suicidal thoughts and you start feeling like I'm a burden to everybody in the world and I just want to leave. Like, I just don't want to be here anymore. And you start thinking, like, how do I escape this? Welcome to Just a Special, the place to learn more about foster care from diverse perspectives. I'm Natasha, a foster mom to a teen girl. And I'm Rachel, a mentor to foster kids. So today's episode is about falling through the cracks. Natasha, can you introduce who we are interviewing today? So we're talking with Kanisha E. Anthony. She is the author of the memoir labeled Word of the State, where she describes her time in unlicensed skin care, which is something that doesn't get discussed as much as traditional foster care. And Natasha, for those of us that don't know, what is skin care? So kin care is when a child is placed with someone that they had a bond with before being removed from their home. So that could be a grandparent or other family member, or even a neighbor, a teacher, a coach. And what's interesting about Kanisha's story is that her time was in unlicensed kin care, which means that her caregivers weren't receiving supports from the foster care systems at the same level as she would have been if she was in licensed kin care. Reading through Kanisha's book really taught me a lot, and our interview was no different. In fact, she schooled me in the way that language really matters when it comes to foster care. So one thing that I like to say is that I don't call us foster kids. I call us children in foster care because at the end of the day, we are children. And when you put those labels, it's like when you used to call someone a foster child, you are labeling them and putting them inside of this box. So I like to say children in foster care because I think that it brings back the humanity in a statement where a person can remember like, this is just a child. Like, this is really just a child regardless of their circumstances. So that's something we're going to definitely be practicing. And we didn't get perfect this episode, but we're going to make a huge effort to moving forward and how we talk about kids in care instead of foster kids. Kanisa also shared how she fell through the cracks time and time again and the serious impacts that resulted. When you're born, your mother is the first person that hugs you. So to just not have that, like no program, no system can replace that. And it's just like, wow, I I don't have my mother. Like what are the things that you need your mother for? 
So I didn't have my mother since I was four. At four, I was removed from her. So for me, it's just like, I don't have my, I just would never have my mom. I would never have my dad. And before we go further, a trigger warning here that this episode contains a brief description of sexual assault. You can skip the next two minutes if that's not something you can hear right now. So it was the last day of eighth grade when uh, my sister's boyfriend had attempted to molest me and I had to fight my way out of that situation. I told my school bus driver immediately the police was contacted and the police continued to ask me, you know, what happened. And I told them the story over and over and over, but The police just didn't do anything about it, and they just sent me home. Well, they sent me back to my sister, and they didn't handle the situation. And, you know, once something like that happened with a child, the Department of Children and Families is going to be contacted again. So that was a situation where red flags was definitely raised, where when the workers came to our home, they had another opportunity to review what was going on and pull me out of the cracks that I fell through. But again, it was one of those situations that was just a bandaid was just put on the situation and a professional came and still without taking me and saying like, you know, this child is not safe in this present moment. She don't have a stable home, but it was just something that just kept going under the rug. And I just kept falling through the cracks each and every time. Yeah, that's a lot. And another thing that stood out to me is your scoliosis diagnosis. So you were diagnosed, but then you never, ever received treatment. Right. But now in this placement, I'm in a non-relative placement. So this person is not related to me. And she also had demands where she was, you know, telling my social worker what she was and what she wasn't going to do. And taking me to the doctor was not a part of her routine to care for me because she had to take off of work. So she felt like that was interfering with her money. So she's like, I'm not taking her to the doctor. You guys have to take her to the doctor. That was a very interesting situation where now me looking back on the situation that, you know, that it it, it still didn't get done. How overburdened caseworkers are. So it's like a, it's a double-ended sword there. Can you describe a memory of when you were in kin care and you were not treated the same as the other kids in the house? Similar to the scoliosis diagnosis, like I'm sure that woman would have taken her own kids to the hospital, right? But that's something she wasn't willing to do for you. Can you describe some of those other moments where it was really obvious that there was difference in treatment? So I was living, when I was living with a non-relative you know, Christmas time, you just knew the difference where I never got Christmas gifts, but her child would have. The tree is flooded with gifts for her child. Just at the rate that they got their hair done, they got their hair done every two weeks while I hardly ever got my hair done unless I got it done myself. You know, from my culture and my walk of life, we call ourselves sneakerheads where we love sneakers. So, Jordan, they he dropped his shoes every month, let's say, and 
people run out to go get the Jordan. So they're nice sneakers and I like Jordans. Ones are my favorite Jordans, but you know, she will buy her daughter the shoes and not buy me the shoes. And you know, that's something that's really popular in my culture. So to just see that as a child, you know that you're being treated differently and that this person don't value you at the same level that they value their biological child. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up the holidays because like you're saying, I think that's a time when the differences can really be emphasized and highlighted. And you talked to in the book about how before every major holiday, culturally, it was something where everyone gets a new outfit, you get your hair done, you get your nails done, right? You want to like really look good and dress up. But like you were saying, you know, with like you were responsible for getting your hair done where the other kids around you, their caretakers would make sure that that happened. Right. So here from my, you know, my walk of life again, you know, we use words like, you know, get fly and get fresh. And it was very daunting to go through that where you don't get to do those things and living in seven different homes throughout your childhood, you know, everything was different. So I can, you know, talk about a time when I lived with my cousin where I did have those outfits, but to keep moving around and going through all of those different transitions, everything was always different. So, you know, we talk about when you come into the foster care system that, you know, we talk about normalcy and keeping your life as normal as possible. But when you shuffle through placements so many times, you lose that and everything is different. Everybody responds to how you feel and the things that you're accustomed to is different. But in that home, for me during those times, it was more so that a person just didn't want to do it for me. Like they didn't have that level of love for me that that was something that they wanted to give to me because you can see that they gave that to their child. So it's not that it's not something that they don't believe in. And she gave it to herself as well. So it's not something that she doesn't believe in. It was just something that she didn't want to give to me for whatever reason that is. And I can imagine that's so, so difficult because you're probably already grieving not being able to be with your family. And then to have that on top of it just seems really hard. Another thing that really stood out to me um, that you describe in terms of the differences that you experienced when you were in placement between biological kids and yourself was also like savings for college and extracurricular activities. Whereas you saw other people putting away money for the other kids in their care for college or, you know, paying for sports or just other activities, but that wasn't made available to you. So I always wanted to be a cheerleader. I wanted to run track. I wanted to be a flag at. And I really was all of these things, right? Like I tried out for the teams, I made the team. So it wasn't like I sucked at it and they're like, oh, she really can't do it. Like she's not good enough to do this, but I wanted to do those things. And due to financial reasons, I wasn't able to do those things. So for me, it was like one of those, like it was very frustrating. And you know, when I, I always think that when a child don't have nothing to do, like they find something to do, right? And you start getting in, I started getting into a lot of trouble, like they're being very distracted and taking out a lot of my frustration throughout my behavior. So that's what that experience was for me. And just always being told no, that even when I wanted to do something positive, people will tell me no, but they'll criticize you when you do something negative. Mm, that's a hard spot to be in. 
It's like you can't win. It definitely feels like you can't win. The most frustrating part about that position is that the people who are criticizing you and the people who you're talking to are the people that are supposed to care for you, right? They're supposed to be your parental figures and you're experiencing that with them. So it's not like, you know, a complete stranger where they just really don't matter. These are the people that's supposed to care about you, right? So as a child, when you're in that position, you start thinking like, if I'm not with my parents for whatever reason that is, and you, and so, you know, me, I was the type of child, I felt like my parents didn't love me. So my parents don't love me and I'm in this position. And the people that were supposed to step up and fulfill their shoes, they don't care about me either. So you, that's how those I'm not loved feelings come in. Like nobody cares about me. Nobody cares about what I want. Nobody is teaching me anything. Everybody is just no, no, no. You can't do this. You can't do this. And when you do do something, you're doing it wrong. And it, it turns into a ball of frustration. And I was the kind of child that shut down. I just will stay in the corner. Like I will accept my circumstances and say, okay, this is what your life is, Kanisha. You can't do this. You can't do that. Sit in this corner because you don't want to move again. So just stay here. Don't say nothing. And don't, don't try to cause any problems. And that was a problem for people, right? So it's like you just start going through all of these feelings. Like you just, as a child, with no control, because I'm not an adult. I can't just go get, you know, a career job. So I, I, I really can't change my circumstances at this moment because I'm a child and I don't know what to do. So that's a very, very frustrating position to be in that I, I, I hated those feelings. Like I, I just like, that's how you start. That's how you start rolling into suicidal thoughts and you start feeling like I'm a burden to everybody in the world. And I just want to leave. Like, I just don't want to be here anymore. And you start thinking like, how do I escape this? You know, Rachel, that's a lot. And hearing Kanisha's story, I just think if I was her, how would I not feel the exact same way? Or any kid in care with the kids who come through my home that are in foster care, sometimes they act super independent and tough and like they don't need anybody and they don't care about anybody else. And what's really behind that all is just a lot of hurt from being let down over and over again by adults in their lives who should have been caring for them. And I see a lot of parallels to that in prison. Natasha, as you know, I'm a volunteer at a women's prison with a lot of those women who have children in the foster care system. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is because a lot of those women, those mothers, they have deep-rooted abandonment and lack of love that they felt like they received from their parents. And without that attention and a love, it becomes generational where their parents didn't give them the love or attention that they wanted and needed. And then they're also unable to give that to their children. Let's hear more from Kanisha about the lack of support she had from caregivers in her life. Man, I hit rock bottom. When I was in that moment and I just reflect back on those days and those times, I shed so many tears where like my stomach was growling. I'm hungry 
And it's just like, wow, nobody is coming to save you, Kenesha. And I, I really had to get in tune with my feelings and emotions. Like nobody is really coming to save you. Like nobody's not even about to pass you a napkin right now to wipe your tears. So what are you going to do? I mean, you could kill yourself, but do you, are you ready to die? Like, are you re really ready to do what it takes to take your own life? It's like, no. So you keep living and it's like, okay, you, you have to figure something out. Like you just have to turn, you have to turn your own life around. So, you know, I do believe in guardian angels and my aunt May, which is my great aunt. Um, she was someone very, someone that I love so much that even when I talk about her, I probably, I still start tearing up just thinking about her right now. But you know, I just think that she always, her, she, she, her presence is always with me. And during those times, she, you know, she just covered me. And I just feel like she gave me those thoughts to, to figure out a plan to see my way through and just really take things a step at a time where it was like, review your current situation, Kanisha, what can you do? So I'm, um, I'm 18 in the 11th grade. I'm behind in credits due to so many different reasons. So I'm in, I'm in that moment and it's like, okay, Kanisha, what do you have? So when I was 18, I didn't get a lot of resources when I aged out of the foster care system due to my placement type, regardless that I had been there since I was four years old. Uh, my placement type at the end was non-relative and non-licensed. So I didn't get a lot of resources, but the one resource that I did get was the tuition exemption here in Florida, you can go to college for free until you're 28 years old if you age out of the foster care system. So I was able to get that. So I'm 18 and that's the one piece of light, a piece of hope that I see like, okay, you could go to college commission for free. So I'm like, okay, how do I create a plan to get to college. So I'm behind in credits. So now I'm like, okay, I got to go to night school. I got to catch up on my credits because I'm 19. I don't want to graduate when I'm 20 and do a whole nother year in high school. So I went down, I sat down with my counselor. I enrolled in night school. I did virtual school. I attended day school. So my days were from five in the morning to 11 o'clock at night, Monday through Thursday. I used to be so thankful when Friday came. I could just go straight home after school. At, uh, what, we, what time we got out of school? I think like at 2.20. That was days. I, I just prayed for Fridays to come. But, you know, I pushed through and I just embraced my struggle and just knew that, you know, at one day that, something good was going to come out of this. And I just really kept that with me. And I took things a day at a time. And Yeah, that, that was definitely one of my questions for you was, can you describe the intense schedule you took on to graduate high school? So I'm so glad you touched on that. And it was insane. It was over 12-hour days, like you were saying, day school, night school, having to do all the homework. Um, and you described, too, a moment that really stuck with me was, Sometimes you'd be so, so hungry, you know, almost on the verge of tears, like you're talking about. And sometimes stopping at a friend's house just to eat like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich before going to your night classes. And, you know, sometimes that wasn't an option. So not only were you in school all day, all night, but then like you're talking about, you didn't even always have the money to eat. Yeah, those were those were really tough times, man. But, you know, 
And that's why I, something that I do talk about in my book is like, man, I really do understand the struggle and I want other people to understand that everybody don't make it out of that situation. Like everybody is not that strong. Everybody's breaking point is so different. Like I'm not an adult. I'm a child trying to find a way. Like I'm really just trying to find a way with no support system. So those are very hard times when we start looking at the suicidal rate. You start looking at um, governmental assistance and why people are actually on government assistance. That was something that I really want people to pay attention to because like I said, everybody is not that resilient, right? To just keep pushing through where that can really channel into so many different other things. Like I could have went to Publix and just stole bread and, you know, just stole food to eat just to go to school, right? But they'll take you to jail and never ask you, why are you, why did you steal this loaf of bread, right? Like they will never get that deep into the situation, but they will just quickly arrest you and incarcerate you and give you a record that can cause other problems in your life when you're really just trying to get ahead and you're just in poverty and you're just trying to really make a way. So for me, I, I really want the world to, you know, be empathetic to people and children who are in that survival mode because that's survival mode. And everybody just don't overcome that. Like, and it's not something easy that people can overcome. How I'm saying, like, I just embraced being hungry. That's not, that wasn't easy. I cried so many, like I cried so much and so many times. So people should really understand that, man, that's painful. Right. And when we look at the statistics of kids who are aging out of foster care, it aligns with what you're saying. You know, most don't make it. Many of them are ending up homeless or in jail. And like you're saying, people aren't really asking the why. And it is a society problem, too, like you're saying. Whereas these kids are, I think when a lot of people think of foster care, they think of babies or small children. They don't think often of the teenagers or the people aging out, like you're saying, too, your problems don't stop, you know, when you age out because you're not having a lot of support a lot of the time or enough support. I like in your book too, how you really sum up kin care as a gray area of good enough for a placement option, but not good enough for supports. How have you seen this impact the kids and caregivers in these situations? I believe that some people just would never care for you how your parents would care for you, right? You can have, a, you can live with your aunt, but is your aunt going to save for you to go to college? Is your aunt going to put you on her Medicaid, on her medical insurance once you age out of foster care and you no longer get medical insurance, right? Those are the type of things that I look at and it's like, you're still left here without your parent, right? You still don't have that person who's going to always go above and beyond because you are their child. So that is the gray area for me where even it gets even trickier that if you're with a relative, you get certain benefits. But if you're with a non-relative and it's non-licensed, you are really at the bottom of the barrel, right? Like you really qualify for absolutely nothing. Like not even... You know, mon like you don't even qualify for money. In my case, the lady who I was living with, she was not related to me at all, no blood relation. But when we tried to get her license, you know, she wasn't able to pass the background for licensing for licensing. But she was just good enough just for me to be placed with her. That's really mind blowing when you think about it. I think 
that the system was okay with you living with someone who couldn't pass a background check? For licensing, right? Right, for licensing. <laughs> wow. From working in the system and really learning about it and reflecting back on it. I just really thought that was so crazy. Like, how can you really... So it was safe enough for me to be here, like just to be here, but not safe enough for her to be licensed for me to get benefits to have further support. Mm. But I'm still in the system. And that was another thing that blows my mind. Like when me having a caseload, I, I try to tell people like, regardless of whatever placement you're in, you guys all have the same social worker, right? So I'm the caseworker and I have to go see all 25 of these children, regardless of what placement they're in. Yeah. And I really want to dive into your experience then on the other side, being a caseworker, because I found that really fascinating as well. You see the disparities firsthand of the support that these kids are having in, you know, from the system, but also from the family that they're in. Right. And when I aged out, my independent living specialist told me, you know, there were no resources available for me due to my placement type. And that was, I I just, that really broke my heart because I really needed help. Like I really needed help. I needed support. I needed resources. And I just was being told that nothing was available to me just because I was in a non-relative placement. That was not mm-hmm. licensed. But that's why um, I thought that this book was so important to write because I was able to find those resources that they only care that you were in the system. Like you was affected by the system in some way, shape or form. And the resources are available to you. So regardless of whether if you have the placement was licensed or not, there's people in our community that is open and willing to help. And you just have to know who they are. We're so thankful for our community of supporters that makes just a special possible. This episode is brought to you by Christina Whiteley, realtor with Fabulous Homes Colorado, powered by Keller Williams Freedom. So Rachel, I can tell you from personal experience that home buying can be really stressful and you really wanna make sure you're in the right hands. Tell me about Fabulous Homes Colorado, Natasha. So Fabulous Homes Colorado offers no pressure home buying, and they also specialize in serving veterans and first-time home buyers in El Paso County, Woodland Park, and Pueblo in beautiful Colorado. And they also offer a video tour so you can buy remotely. So if you want a realtor that truly values relationships over transactions, give Christina a call at 719-310-4347 and tell her that Just a Special sent you. You can learn more about Christina and Fabulous Homes Colorado on our website, justaspecial.com. Each office is independently owned and operated. Can you describe some of those challenges you faced in earning your degrees? Because you earned a bachelor's, you went on to earn a master's, and it was really eye-opening for me to read all the challenges you had to navigate. So you had all those challenges navigating high school and getting your diploma. You were able to do that, but then the challenges really didn't stop. Can you kind of describe your time in, in college and what that was like? My biggest challenge when before I mastered college, right? So a challenge is that I'm a first generation college graduate, right? So I didn't have anyone to tell me, well, this is what you do in college, right? Because nobody around me had went. So now definitely figuring that out, figuring college out and 
the system not telling me how I needed to utilize my tuition exemption in the education system. That was a big challenge for me, just lack of communication on behalf of the foster care system to the education system and navigating the resources for that. Wanting to live off campus or even wanting to live on campus and not having credit and a co-signer, that's a big challenge that you have to face right there where the system is not going to sign <laughs> their credit. Like this is the foster care system. And I, I just say that in a whole, like as to professionals, the foster care system don't have credit, right? That could sign your lease and be a co-signer for you. So in that capacity, who are you going to call? And the college system, the for housing and the apartment complexes, they don't understand that, well, I was in foster care and I didn't have my parents, so I don't have a co-signer, nor do I have credit. So what do I do in that capacity if I want to, you know, go to college out of state or out of my hometown where I can't stay at a licensed home or wherever you will be living at that time? And just the emotions and the mental capacity of having to really just sometimes you are accomplishing things and sometimes you are happy and your your parents still not there. Right. So now you're reaching heights into your life that you're proud of. You're happy. And then you just realize that the core of my family is not here. Like, And you have to live with that for the rest of your life. Like, Well, that's my reality that I have to live with that for the rest of my life that. No matter what I accomplish, my parents will never be there to clap me on or support me in any capacity. And they're they're both deceased now. So that's just really, it's just no hope of ever, you know, no reconciliation coming from that. Like it's just something that I just have to live with. Just yesterday I was having a conversation and like just my mom and my parents came up. And it's for me, that's always just like a blank area where I don't even know what to do with it. It's just like, this this is just my life. Natasha, I really appreciated the vulnerability that Kanisha had with us in order to discuss the fact that, you know, she really didn't have a strong community and her family couldn't show up for her in the ways that she needed. Right, Rachel. And that's a theme that I saw come up again and again in her book. And also when I was talking with her is Kanisha's struggle to really build a community that was truly supportive of her. And I found that lack of community to be most evident in her big life transitions. So in Florida, something that's really popular to do is to throw what they call a trunk party for high school graduates. And what that is, is it's a time for family and friends to gather and have a party and really celebrate this high school graduate before they go off to college. And what they do is they bring gifts, um, whether that be school supplies or items for a dorm room, just anything to really help this new high school graduate embark on their journey of going to college. And Kanisha talked with me about what her own trunk party was like. I was getting ready to go to Florida State University. I had got accepted and silly me thinking, oh, I'm so dumb. I never could get inside of Florida State University. That's like the top university in Florida out of UM. So 
I was very proud of myself for getting accepted into that school. So I wanted to celebrate and have a trunk party. I had people in my life, but that love, like that, I'm going to do whatever for this person. I love her so much. I can't miss this. That love wasn't there. So I saved my money to, you know, celebrate with people that were in my life who I thought were, you know, my loved ones. So those were the people that I classify as my loved ones. And I just knew that they wouldn't miss, you know, these moments of my life. But I felt like, like reflecting back on it, I was putting responsibilities on people that I wanted. That's what I wanted from them, but they were not giving it in return. So my trunk, I had the trunk party and a few people that did show up, showed up. And those that didn't, they just didn't. Yeah. And what I thought was really beautiful too in your book is that Once you got your master's degree, you were able to celebrate with a community of people that truly did care about you and that you'd been able to build over time. And so kind of that difference between that celebration you were able to have, you know, a very fancy dinner where people really celebrated you in comparison to that trunk party where you were a lot younger and really, really wanting to build that community and it not being quite there. How was that moment for you celebrating your master's degree? Well, the first time that I was able to, like without me planning it, right, was my bachelor's degree. And that was a moment that I learned how to let people do things for me. And I learned how to let people celebrate me. And without me having to force people to do something that I wanted them to do, like it was very genuine. My mentor, Fran Levine, she planned the whole thing and all I, she just sent me the address. She asked me where I wanted to eat and I told her where I wanted to eat and she planned the whole thing. She invited the guests. I invited like a few of my friends that I knew that would show up. So it was about 12 of us inside of a private room and it was just breathtaking to receive love from people that wasn't forced or I didn't have to feel a moment of disappointment in that area. It was really genuine, really breathtaking. And it was like a moment where it's like, wow, Kanisha, you can be loved. Like there's people in this world that love you and care about you. Mm, Yeah. I can imagine that being very, very powerful. If you had the chance to go back and talk to your younger self, is there anything you would have said? I just would have told my younger self, like, you're beautiful. Because I used to think I was ugly because of, like, just how I felt about myself and how people taught me. So something I would have told my younger self is, like, man, you're beautiful and don't. And no matter what anybody say or how anybody perceive you or look at you, like, you are still beautiful. I think that's a really, really important message. And I see it in the teen girls that come through my home, too. Like sometimes they'll say negative things about themselves. And I think that's a really, really powerful message. You know, like you're a beautiful person, both how you look, but also who you are. I think that can be really powerful. Like you say, you know, you're beautiful inside and out. So once you accept that about yourself and you'll attract people who feel the same way that you do. And also I was putting responsibilities on my friends that they didn't know how to respond to, right? So we want our friends to be our families because 
we because we didn't have family right so you're like this is going to be my family but have you communicated that with that person have you talked about that with that person do they want to do this with you are they open to doing this so that's what disappointment starts to come in when a person don't respond how you want them to respond because that, that goes back to when we was talking about how a person treats you different than their own family. So when you start to accept, when you start to look at people like that and you see how they treat their family, you expect your expectation. Well, my expectation was for them to, you know, treat me how they treat their family. And when they don't do that, it was painful. So, you know, I think that's something, those wounds that we have and that, that abandonment where you are, you might can be putting responsibilities off on people that don't have no intentions of fulfilling that void for you. That's a really, really good point and really shows, I think, how much you've had to grow too to have that self-awareness. And a lot of people just never make it there, I think. They're not even able to really verbalize that. And, you know, I can't say that if I had had the same life experiences, I would have been able to verbalize it and have that self-awareness that you have now. I think it's pretty incredible. So switching gears a little bit, I know like through the system as you were growing up, like you had some good caseworker experiences, some not so good caseworker experiences. I think anyone that's been involved in foster care long enough definitely has experienced both ends of that continuum. Um, and then you became a caseworker. Can you talk about you know some of the challenges that you experienced and how it made you kind of think of caseworkers in a new way that you had experienced when you were growing up? So one, how we talked about my caseworker not taking me to my medical appointments, understanding that the work that caseworkers have to do are, is sometimes nearly impossible. And you really have to, you have to be this phenomenal being to do this job honestly, where you as a child, you don't have that complete understanding. Like you don't understand it at all. And you just see someone who goes to work and they're supposed to do these things for you. But in my experience on um, caseworker, you know, I've learned that I can't take care of no one unless I can take care of myself. And in that position is really hard and difficult and challenging too take care of yourself where you begin to neglect yourself so much that you care because you because you're trying to care for other people but like I say you can't care for no one unless you care for yourself and once you just hit that burnout it's like it's over and it's not that you want to you know fail children or not do the things that they need done is that you're in a position where you have this big heart and you want to help everybody, but you're just in a position where you honestly can't, where you can have your um, administration, you know, putting all type of constraints on you and calling you, asking you to do things that's not able to be done due to we only have 12, what you have 12 hours in a day. So that was my empathy that I, was able to have, that was a conversation I was able to have with my younger self and understanding that, you know, it may have seemed like my caseworkers didn't care, but the moment that they were neglecting me, they could have been caring for somebody else. Right. And in the book too, you describe 
your schedule was just absolutely insane. You ended up having to work weekends just to fit more things in and you still weren't able to address everything that was going on with your caseload. And at one point, right, your hair started falling out. You were just like so stressed and, you know, unable to also keep up with taking care of yourself. And then you had the pressures of your organization who were like, you know, these things are on fire. And then you're having to deal with really difficult cases, sometimes multiple at the same time. Also inheriting other people's cases who had quit because that was a really common thing that happened, right? Is caseworkers just burning out even within the first year and quitting. And then the remaining people, you know, getting their cases who might have been in various states of crisis. Can you like maybe describe like a a day for you? The first year as a caseworker was very challenging for me where I really had to have a conversation with myself about like, you know, is this job for me? And can I, can I do it? I really, really wanted to do the job. So I was able to find a way to make it work for me in a way, but it was still stressful because of all of the demands of the job. So down south from my home could be like an hour drive. So I could wake up in the morning, drive down south, got to think about traffic. We have heavy traffic here in Miami. So you have to calculate that time into there, right? So that hour drive could turn into a two-hour drive, just going there. Then you have to, you know, see the child, do whatever it is that you have to do down there. Then you got to get back in the same traffic, right? So now that's about five hours right there. You can have a day like that, and you can still have a document that's due where the organization is telling you, you can't go home until this document is due. So now you're driving back to the office and you can't leave the office until this document is done. Let's say, for instance, that document could be a home study. Now you have to get that paper. You got to go to someone else's house and you have to do the home study. And then you have to type up the home study to have it done by the deadline that they're giving you. And that's two things in one day. Meanwhile, right, you're probably getting calls and emails about other situations that are emergency situations. So you would think an emergency is the priority, but in this position, you have to prioritize the emergencies. So it's like, okay, which one is important? And then, you know, everybody is so worked out, so burned out. So you're calling around, you're asking for help and people are telling you no, but you still have to get this task done. And that's where it really becomes frustrating when you're like, oh my God, how am I going to do this? I'm just one person. Then you're looking to your coworkers to help you and people, they don't want to help you because they got all the million things that they have going on. So it just really be, you know, just very a chaotic position to be in. Can you describe one of your successes as a caseworker? My favorite successes as a caseworker is achieving reunification and sending my children home back to their parents and closing my case and never having to see them again. <laughs> like that's the greatest feeling, definitely reunification. And some like just on a, on a smaller scale, was I was very close with my the kids on my caseload. So I would take my kids to go get their nails done. I would sit down and eat lunch with them. So those moments for me was, I love those moments. Those was my happy moments about being a caseworker that I actually got to take people places that they never been before or eat something that they never ate that they just wanted to try. Just taking them to go get their nails done. I just enjoyed doing those type of things. I didn't 
rely on agency to give me the funding to do so. Like that was just something that I did from the bottom of my heart that I wanted to do. And, you know, those, those small moments are those moments that could really impact someone's life where you can keep that with that. They, that's something that they can live with forever. Like, you know what? Everybody in the world isn't evil. Everybody in the world, they don't care about me. You know, you, you can just find that one person. Even if I wasn't able to be a permanent connection for people, I was able to make an impact. I was able to have an impactful moment in their lives. So those were self-fulfilling moments for me in the job where I had a grandmother stand up before the toughest judge in Miami and tell them, and just say night kind words about me. I didn't even know she was going to do that. And, you know, I helped them get everything that they needed to close the case and to be able to sustain afterwards and just have a strong support system. And, you know, on record, she expressed that to a judge. And it's just those moments for me that was very self-fulfilling about the job. And that, that helped me tolerate all of the chaos that came with it, that I know that I'm really helping people. Do you feel like in those moments you were describing that you were the person that you wished you had when you were growing up? So I definitely went into my, I went into that job. Like I'm going to be the person that I always wanted. Like I don't, I'm not going to neglect people on purpose or, you know, just let people down due to, you know, slack my own slack. Um, so I definitely do agree with that statement that I was showing up as the person that I wanted in my life. And do you feel too your experiences helped you work with the biological parents of foster kids in a way that maybe you wouldn't have been able to as successfully? Like, did you kind of have a rapport with them in a way that maybe somebody else not coming from the neighborhood would be able to establish? Or to just be able to understand them maybe in ways that other people weren't? I think my life experience as a whole helped me to be able to have rapport with biological parents where just understanding the issues, like I said, simple things that people don't think about. Like you just ask the why. Like why 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 is this like this in your life? Like I was that person who always felt like people didn't ask me why. So I was I asked them why. Like why is this like this for you? Or why do you think this way? And just have conversations with them. But you know, just as a whole, my life as a whole and understanding poverty, understanding lack of resources, understanding having a lack of support system. That was my reasons to why I was able to just have an understanding with people and ask questions that most people don't won't ask because they're for whatever reason that they're not. Asked, I don't know why people don't ask those questions, but and it was more so. I've learned to meet people where they're at and not put expectations on people due to my walk of life. It's like, I don't know how you think. I don't know how you handle your issues. But if I can meet you where you at and understand your way of thinking and your way of life, then I can help you because I can't put all of my ideologies on you and expect you to handle things how I'm going to handle things because at some point I'm going to walk away from you and I'm not going to be here. And you need to be able to handle these situations on your own. So it's about me in that position, understanding you and helping you because this is, it's not about me and it's not about what I think. 
So the book ends with you like really going to therapy and working through some of your traumas. Like, do you have any update on that in terms of like where you are personally? Personally, I think that I am out of survival mode and I am now in, I'm thriving and I have created a life for myself where I'm still learning because I just believe I'm going to be a lifetime learner. And at every new level, there's always something new that you have to learn. But to sum up my where I'm at now, I just think that I'm out of survival mode and I'm thriving and learning. Natasha, Kanisha's story was extremely eye-opening to me, knowing that her story is not rare in the fact that she was failed by the system. I think it's important to note that she entered the system traumatized, and she left even more traumatized. You know, Rachel, same for me. Hearing Kanisha's story really drove home the importance that we need to do better as a society and in our communities of supporting kids in foster care. These kids are at our local schools, they're at our local parks, you know, we might even be passing them by in the grocery store and not even know it. And often foster care is an invisible problem. We truly need to do better, like we're saying. And to that end, we highly recommend Kanisha's book called Labeled Word of the State to really get an inside perspective of the challenges that these kids are facing. You can check out our website, justaspecial.com, to get a link to buy Kanisha's book directly from her and support Black business. And another way to help is to share our podcast with a friend or family member. Visit justaspecial.com to share this episode and others. That's right. We really need your help as our listeners to get the word out about Just as Special so we can all inspire more people to get involved with foster care, whether that's volunteering or donating to local foster care agencies or becoming a licensed foster parent. And if you're not already involved in foster care already, but are interested in taking that first step, visit our website for lists of small or big ways you can make a difference. That's a wrap. Thank you to our special guest, Kanisha E. Anthony. This podcast is produced by House of Pod and made possible by generous support from Ant. This episode is brought to you by Christina Whiteley, realtor with Fabulous Homes Colorado, powered by Keller Williams Freedom. So Rachel, we actually moved into a bigger home right before we started foster care to get more space. And we are sure glad we did. It's made a huge difference. Natasha, tell me about Fabulous Homes Colorado. Well, Fabulous Homes Colorado specializes in helping first-time homebuyers and veterans find the right fit for their families from cute condos to luxury homes. What parts of Colorado do they serve? So they serve El Paso County, Woodland Park, and Pueblo. And what I've noticed most about Christina is that she truly cares about the community and not just with lip service. So if you want a realtor that truly values relationships over transactions, give Christina a call at 719-310-4347 and tell her just a special sent you. You can also learn more about Christina and Fabulous Homes Colorado on our website, justaspecial.com. Each office is independently owned and operated.